you've got me talking about stuff I never talk about. I, I was engaged to her and all of a sudden, it's over. It threw me completely. Who is the best manager in the world? I... Ooh. How many goals does it take to become a Manchester United legend? Seven. <laughs> <laughs> this is your daily catch-up. I scored seven. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's a beautiful day. We have Manchester United legend, business tycoon, and the most famous sports broadcaster in the UK, or perhaps in the world, Mr. Gary Neville. Oh, we have stepped up. Welcome United. to the show. We have picked. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> we got energy from the get go. Well, it's a great honor to be here. I'm delighted to be on the Daily Catch Up, and I also love being in Singapore. And it's good to see you guys. What brings you here? Well, this time I've got a meeting with uh, our business partner and our mentor, my mentor, Peter Lim. And we're also launching our uh, project in uh, Manchester, which is a W Residences project, so W Ooh. Hotel and W Residences. So we're uh, launching the apartments, which is really exciting. And it's a project that we've been on for many, many years. Okay, so before we jump too far ahead, I think obviously not everybody can just become a Manchester United legend and there were a lot of things that you had to sacrifice on the way there. And I think one of the things that I remember you saying is having to cut off most of your friends between the ages of 16 to 20. Yeah. Mm. And if I recall correctly, what your dad had told you was to get where you are going, you cannot be enjoying life with the people that you are currently enjoying them. It's with. quite brutal, actually, when I look back. Um, but I think I was quite brutal at the end of my football career when I think about it, because I, I actually, I got offered a job at United as a youth team coach. And I got offered a role as an ambassador at United. But one of the things I wanted to do was get rid of the X-Manchester United tag. Mm. So at the end of, you know, I did it at the end of my football career, but at, when I left school, I, what what really sort of hit me hard when I was, I was at United from 11 and everything was fine until I got to 14, 15, 16. And David Beckham joined, Paul Scholes joined, Giggsy joined from City, um, <clears throat> Nicky joined, I think, from Oldham. And I thought, I'm not as good as these. I was nowhere near as good as them. You know, talent-wise, they were miles ahead of me. Giggsy was like a phenomenon. Was that something you realized on your own or someone had to tell you? No, you realized. I tell you what, the realization comes when you start, when you're a centre midfield player and you get told all of a sudden start playing right back because, because they're right. playing centre midfield. You're, but you just know, you can just, you, you, you're, you're alongside them. They can kick the ball better, they score more goals, they, they can run faster, they can dribble, and you think, oh my God, I'm miles away here. So I had to reinvent myself from sort of 15, 14, 15, 16, from being a midfield player at United, which I, as a kid, I was a midfield player, believe it or not, <laughs> and, and then end up being a, a fullback. Um, so from that point of view, I just realized that the only way I was ever going to succeed was to do everything perfectly. So for two years, I mean, I literally did everything perfectly. I mean, I trained three times a day and no one trained three times a day. They all trained two times a day. I never drank a drink. 
in the in the two years from 16 to 18 i never dated any single girl at any point in that that two years not that i probably had them queuing. they weren't <laughs> they weren't, que- they weren't queuing up for me by the way so i'm not saying i was turning it down but generally i just was absolutely perfect and then at 18 i got a four-year professional contract and um i went on holiday with david beckham with chris casper and with ben thornley and had my first ever drink which was basically uh, woodpecker cider. I don't know if you ever get it in Singapore, but it's basically cheap cider, effectively. Okay. Um, and then I had a tequila, and tequila blew my mind in terms of how bad it was. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, now it's a delicacy, tequila. Everyone's on tequila. Ooh. Honestly, tequila is like a, it was from hell when mm. I was younger. But 16, my dad said to me, There's, you've got a choice to make. And they're not sacrifices, by the way. No, nothing's a sacrifice, they're choices. It's you choose to do it or not mm. for yourself and not for anyone else. So for me, I just chose that. That was what I needed to do. And I did that. And I had a bit more of an enjoyable time between 18 and 20, but still decided that I wasn't going to, um, you know, I had girlfriends at school, but I wasn't going to go. <laughs> yeah. I kissed four people once at school disco, I'll let you know. Wow. No, but basically at the age of 20, I, st- I had my first girlfriend, proper girlfriend beyond United. Mm. And I thought, right, okay, I'm in the first team now. So I have to get some sort of no, you know, resemblance of normal life back. But for that four years, I was just so switched on. And you've got to remember, people were still drinking when they were playing football then. Mm. So mm. the reason I think we were so successful when we first got into the team was that you had the drinking culture of English football was still going on. And we were absolute model professionals. And I think fitness is massive. If you, mm. if, if you, if you play, if you're sober, you know, on a, if you're sober on a Wednesday night and someone's been out on a Wednesday night and you're playing against them on a Saturday, mm. that one, two, three percent, honestly, you can tell the difference. You Ooh. honestly can. But that was what you did. Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday afternoon, you went out for a drink. That was what you did. It was part of the culture of Britain, English football. Everybody did it. It wasn't just a case of, you know, it wasn't just a case of sort of they did it at United. Everyone did it. But Sir Alex thought that he needed to change it and professionalise it. And I think it took him sort of like six, seven, eight years. Mm. So I was brutal around this idea that I had to play for United and I was going to give it my best shot. And if it didn't work out, at least I didn't have any regrets. Do you think that you getting into football was a personal dream or was it heavily influenced by your brother and your father? If you have a sporting upbringing, that is something that your parents usually mm. give you. So I, my mum my still plays netball now, rounders. Um, she played hockey on a, in, in winter. And then my dad played cricket in summer and obviously he took us to football in the winter. So we were, we were in a sporting family um, and loved sport, loved watching sport if it was on telly. And so you just fall in love. And for me, it was United. I just fell in love with watching United. You know, you remember like moments of your childhood. Like most of the moments I remember, to be fair, driving to Old Trafford or being at Old Trafford uh, and just absolutely loved the stadium. It it was mesmerizing to me and felt magic in there. Um, I could be in there every single minute of my life. It was, I adored it. And and in that way, I just loved football and carried on playing and playing and playing and practicing and practicing and practicing. And I was lucky I'd, my brother was very good at football as well. I and mean, we just used to play with each other all the time, football, just passing it to each other. And yeah, it's, it's a sporting upbringing. I think to me brings discipline. It brings work ethic. It brings togetherness. It's team, losing, winning, caring for each other. All the things that sport does is a brilliant upbringing mm. for any young person. I would definitely think it's something that we, you know, most of us should encourage our children if we have them to do. So because of the upbringing that we've had in Singapore, I have no idea what is it like to, to send your kid 
for tryout at Manchester United? What is that like? Is there like a every year in December? Yeah, I mean, it's not something that you, you don't send your kid for a trial. Okay. Like you have to be recommended by a scout or you have to be recommended Ooh. by a contact. So I got sent by my head teacher my primary school is also the sports coach and football coach. Uh, he got a letter saying, have you got any talented boys that you think would be worthy of a trial? And he put my name forward. Mm. Um, and I went down to Littleton Road in Salford uh, and basically was on uh, on that about seven or eight or five or six pitches there. They felt back about, felt like thousands of kids, but there's probably about 120 children. And I got picked as one of 15 out of those 120. Wow. And then I just kept getting renewed every single year till I was 14 mm. and then got offered schoolboy forms and then got offered apprenticeship forms. But there comes a point whereby you get spotted. People start talking about you. He's a good player. And then the word starts to spread and then you just get an opportunity and you have to take that opportunity. It's like anything really. Did that pressure start affecting you though when people started talking about your skills and all that? The pressure really starts to kick in when you get into the first team and you then start to have the 75,000 people in the stadium. You've got the millions watching at home. You've got the press, the media. You've got people, tens of millions of people in Asia. Mm. There's 1.5 billion people, I think, watch the Premier League every weekend. 1.5 billion people. Now, if you think you're playing for Manchester United, a lot of those 1.5 billion are watching Manchester United either to watch them win or to watch them lose. That that was the rule. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I get the viewing figures now for Sky, for United. United and Liverpool are well above in terms of what any other clubs. So that's where the pressure starts in. It took me a long time, actually, to get used to the fact that if games were on television, I used to be thinking as I was going out into the tunnel sometimes or even sort of before a match, everyone's watching at home. You know, I can't make a mistake. Attackers go out onto the pitch thinking, I'm going to score the goal that's going to win us the game. We go out onto the pitch as defenders thinking, if I give the ball away or if I get make a mistake or if I give a penalty away, I could cost us the game here. And that, you always go out onto the pitch with that. And then when I said before about feeling really good when I was captain, when I was 32, that's when I became so confident, so comfortable, so understanding that if I did make a mistake, it's just part of the game. I could get over mm. it. That, yeah, But when you're young, you don't think like that. You you feel pressure. Is there any training in the club, especially when you're young for like media training? Yeah. And like, okay. We did. If you put it in, put Gary Neville, Paul Scholes, David Beckham media training in Google and you'll see some of the most hideous oh. <laughs> interviews you'll ever see. Go and put it in there. Now you get it on if you want. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you time. I'll, I'll, I'll re- carry on talking while you look it up. Yeah, I was trying to resist the urge. Yeah, we all, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we always used to do it. Um, and we did it probably three, four times a season. And we'd do scenarios where people would interview us. And the worst thing was the other players would be in front of us. So you'd have to do it with all your teammates. Watch him, watch the Scolesy one. He can't stop looking at everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> it's, quite fun, it's quite funny, the Scolesy one. Have you got it? Well, as I said about it, just magnificent, great to uh, go down to when the first like, goes on. Laughing. comes on my wall and then doing that. What would you say was the difference then between the first and second like, performances? Well, the first, like, I think we a bit of complacent crap to it. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. You've just got our media training that's filmed and he's now on the internet for all to see. It's You've come a long way. Absolutely. That's <laughs> the thing. It's really important that I actually have done this uh, video and I'm actually going to start doing it in presentations. People think that like, you just end up being able to speak to the media and be comfortable mm. doing it. But it's all like quite fun and lighthearted. Like, what was it like to see a first negative like article about you in the newspaper? I, I, just something. I don't know the first negative article about me, but my mum and my dad used to get the three tabloids, the Sun Star Mirror, which was a terrible decision, really. <laughs> 
I remember my first game away for England was in Norway and I thought I'd played really well. And I remember there was this reporter and he gave me four out of 10, nervous wreck, Ooh. totally out of your depth. That, yeah. and I, I'll never, ever forget, literally the morning after, my mum and dad were so upset. I was actually upset because I played quite well. And I remember Terry Venables ringing me actually, which was unique and, and said, look, I thought you played really well. Keep going, son. You're, on a, you're a big part of my plans for the... Uh, Euro 96 competition. And then the worst one was that um, my mum used to get the Daily Star and every single year they used to have an ugly 11. Oh, right. no. <laughs> the... And so basically, <laughs> right back, it basically had Gary Neville and it basically had a comment next to it saying, a face only his mother could love. <laughs> oh and then the worst thing was it got left back and it was Philip Neville. <laughs> <laughs> and, it was, and the comment was, even his mother struggles. <laughs> <laughs> and honest, that's a true story. And my mum was absolutely devastated. <laughs> and you're all laughing at you. Know what I mean? But you imagine at the age of 21, 22, it's not particularly pleasant, you know what I mean, reading these types of personal insults. Yep. And mm -hmm. you get used to it. And now I'd laugh about it, obviously. But back then, it, you know, it does, it does sort of, uh, it does affect you. And now it's social media. Mm -hmm. You know, the players have to contend with comments like that all the time. And it's not just one article, it's like millions of comments every day. Do you know what the easy thing to say is, oh, why, don't read it, don't go on it. Honestly, it, it is so naive to think. Because mm. what happens is when you're a football player, and I stopped reading the newspapers, the tabloids at the age of 24, I had a bit of a bad time, didn't play well after the treble, lost mm. my confidence a little bit. And to be fair, the manager said, stop reading the newspapers. And I stopped reading them and it was a really brilliant thing for me. Yep. But if there's a really bad article on you or someone says something bad, people tell you. Yeah. So mm. People tell you, people say, oh, do you see that about you? We, you know, that was a bit harsh. You know, they just tell you, your friends, your family or people in the dressing room have, have read it. You know, one of the chefs, one of the, you know, kit men or whatever it might be say, oh, keep your head up, son. You know what I mean? Oh, keep your head up. What, what with? You, oh, you, no. you know, things like that. So you, you get told anyway. So I have to say that like, for instance, at the moment, United, a lot of the players are getting a lot of criticism. It is really hard. You did mention the treble just now, and I think yeah. mm. this is something that you've repeatedly mentioned that you think is the pinnacle of your career that night in Camp Nou. And I wonder what is it like because there are many celebrities that after hitting sort of a peak, they struggle to maintain that success or they struggle so much mentally because they yeah. know that they're probably never ever going to be able to top that. And it didn't seem like you struggled with that, but did you? I, well, that when I say to you 24 and at that time, just after the treble where I dipped, that was after the treble mm. when I had my dip because it was just such a high. The, the treble was unbelievable. It was like a... A journey for 15 years of Sir Alex since he'd come down from Aberdeen of building this team based upon youth and, you know, academy players. And then we go and win all three trophies in a season. It was it was absolutely fantastic to do that. I do think, though, we all realised that night when we won the treble that we, it was never going to be as good again in terms of a single season. We knew that was like the, the, the best it could ever mm. be. The dip that you are talking about, do you, was it regarding your performance or was it a mental struggle? Both. I, two things happened. One, I, I got an injury and then I didn't play well and I came back. But also I'd been going out with, um, I'd been seeing someone for about four, five, six years and that relationship broke up at the same time and it just, oh. it threw me completely. Like I was engaged to her. So you have your first oh. sort of like um, girlfriend you have for five, six years, you think you're going to be with them forever. Mm. And all of a sudden it's over and you think that wasn't supposed to happen and we were going to get married. Um, so for me, that was something that, 
you know, for the best now when I look back. Why, why did you all break up? You cheeky little uh, sod. <laughs> you cheeky little sod. <laughs> I said that's anything, but not that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was, was it your fault? Was it your fault? Except for everything I don't want to talk about. Catch up. <laughs> do you know something? So she went to go and do a placement of six months in France and Germany. And she went to Germany first and that was fine. Then when she went to France for six months, she met someone over there that she got close oh, to who was on the course. And when she came back, it just, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, she ended it. Oh, sure. I was not expecting that. What, her to be me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't worry. That was did a she call you back? That's a, that's a regular occurrence. <laughs> did she call you back after you won a cup? We did have a a couple of meetings after that, but it was a few months after. Um, and it doesn't quite work, does it? It doesn't quite feel the mm, same yeah. because the trust is broken. Yeah. The, the, the trust, the the feeling is gone. So, jeez, I'm going into my life. I mean, I've never, yeah. you've got me talking about stuff I never talk about. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a world exclusive. Neville got binned. <laughs> but since you've became a professional footballer, have you ever had to ask for a girl's number? Yeah. How was dating after? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I don't think I've ever asked for a girl's number in wow. my life. You don't look like you need to. <laughs> well, the, the, that girl, the, the girl that I'm talking about there was was uh, the sister of one of my good friends. Um. So I didn't have to ask for a number. Okay. Um, the girl that I went out with after that, I'd known for quite a bit because she was, she was in my sister's sort of circle of friends. And then the obviously my wife now, um, I saw her in a bar in Manchester and Gigsy give my give my number to to Emma's friend. Oh. Wow! So she texts me the day after. So I I I've never asked for someone. I, I've never ever gone up to someone and said, "Can I have your number?" Ever in my life, actually. Because so, at school you didn't do that, did you? You saw people at school and like you know yeah. you you just went over to me, talked to me, you didn't ask for their number. In fact, you didn't have phones then, did you at all? Oh yeah. No, you didn't have phones. Oh, I mean, right, right, right. yeah, I am forty eight by the way. <laughs> the I went to school in nineteen eighties. I was born in nineteen. That's what used to scare me. <laughs> That's what used to scare me when I was coming towards the end of my career. And people were like born in like- <laughs> People were just getting born. It, like, it blew my mind that when I was playing with people and you think uh, in the team. Yeah, so I, I actually have never once asked for a girl's number in my life. Mm. That's, wow. that's interesting that that's another exclusive you've got on the daily catch thank you no, but he has so asked for many girls numbers no, no. <laughs> I respect no, that no. I would never I don't have the boss that, hey, by the way that's not because I didn't no, I didn't have to or I didn't want to it's just it's just never come about that way yeah Yeah. no it's so interesting because it wasn't from the fame or the popularity it was still via like close friends and circles actually. yeah yeah it turned out. was therapy a thing back then for the players I did I did at the oh. time, to be fair, more for the relationship thing than the actual football side because I just lost my confidence completely. And that's why I'm always a little bit, when I see someone who's a little bit off on the pitch, I always think they're not themselves. You can tell it in their face, their body mm. language, and you think, well, what's going on? Mm. Things happen in people's lives and then they come into work. Footballers are no different, but obviously when they come into work, they're going out onto a pitch and expected to be perfect. And we used to have this saying at United that you couldn't bring your 
shit in here. Leave your shit at home. Yeah, leave your shit at home. Don't bring it in here. And that that's not the case now. I think players, to be fair, now obviously have psychologists. They have sort of support networks around them. But, you know, if someone walked into our dressing room and said, you know, I've, I've had an argument with my girlfriend or I've broken up with my girlfriend, they go, we're playing Liverpool tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't really care to be honest with you. you know I mean, I, not that I don't care, but mm. just, just don't bring that in here. You wouldn't, you wouldn't bring that in here. You keep that away, really. Not saying it was a brutal environment, but you just, you wouldn't bring that stuff into the dressing room. So you never really sometimes knew what was going on with different lads. Okay, so like you're here on business, you're here in Singapore quite often for business. I think something that I've been wondering and I've never got the opportunity, clearly. No way. <laughs> you yeah. never think you'll get the opportunity, exactly. by the way. I. <laughs> I was always wondering because like for footballers, like the playing career always ends around the late 30s, right? Like 36, 37, 38. And a lot of them transition into like a managerial job, a coaching job, maybe punditry. I tried. <laughs> we know. Briefly. Valencia. Uh, I didn't want to we'll mention it, but that I have. Later. Yeah. But like, you've kind of gone beyond that. You've built like what many describe as a business empire. I was always wondering like what- No, it's not an empire. Okay, but like many ventures into many different industries. What motivated you to like say, hey, hang on me. I need to build something beyond this playing career. I think- uh, I, obviously, my my dream was to play for Manchester United, and it was f- obviously from a very young age. My dad took me to Old Trafford at the age of five. Wow! Yeah, and so from the age of eleven, when I joined United Centre of Excellence and Academy, to the age of thirty six, I was at United for twenty five years, and that was actually my dream. But then I thought to myself, I'm actually only halfway through my life, maybe, and I had this sort of like ambition to make my next part of my life more exciting than the first part and as enjoyable. Was there a moment though, like in your career, maybe towards the end where you went, okay, I need to build this. Was there like a, a moment like that? Yeah, do you know something? Probably the worst thing, that I would say worst thing, disappointing thing that happened in my football career was at the age I was captain United flying. And I remember being in like an unbelievable moment. Uh, and I got an injury against Bolton. Um, I injured my ankle and I was out for 12 months. Mm. And I missed the 2008 Champions League final. When we won the Champions League final, we won the league, which has been an un- unbelievable team with Rooney, Ronaldo, Carlos Tevez, Ryan Giggs, Paul Scholes, Rio Ferdinand, Nemanja Vidic, Patrice Evra. It was an amazing team. And I missed that season, which was a great regret. But what it taught me was that my football career was coming to an end and I needed to start to think seriously about doing other things. And what really pushed me towards that was when I went back after my injury with my ankle and I started to join back in with those lads I've just mentioned, I was well off the pace. Mm. You know, I was well off it. I was, you know, just a yard short. And then Raphael was coming through the young Brazilian right back. And I thought he looks sharp and I don't look sharp. And I'm aware and I know when sort of things are going well. So I just think that I had time in that two, three years because Sir Alex kept me in the changing room because I think me... Uh, Ryan Giggs and Paul Scholes, we were almost like the guardians of the of the principles and the values in the dressing room. So he knew that he didn't need to be in the change room because we were in there and we would look after the work ethic, the discipline, the sort of making sure everything was spot on. We wouldn't tolerate sort of what would be anything that would damage our chances of success and careers. So it was something that, you know, I, I, it enabled me to build a business career while still at United and get used to being, if you like, retired, even though I wasn't retired. Now probably what, 12 years out of football. I absolutely love every single day. The, the, the overlap, the projects, the development projects at Michael's, the W project we're now doing, uh, Salford City Football Club, the university, um, Sky and doing the games, watching the Premier League games. I mean, everything's really exciting. Um, and, you know, obviously work hard. I think it all it's all born out of basically the principles that we were taught at United, which is to work hard every single day and not give in. So when you finish your football career, 
you have to keep going. You, mm. you can't just mm. stop. So uh, we did talk a bit about your injury earlier on and that's what spurred you to, in a, you started getting your coaching license, buying land and looking into businesses as well. Was there anyone that was a mentor to you at that point of time? Because you had been only thinking about football yeah. for the past 25 years. I mean, it was unbelievable really because I'd finished my career in the January mm. at, at United uh, partway through a season. I was playing so badly and I went to the boss and said, I'm, I'm, I'm finishing. And I did that ambassadorial role, I said, for three months. Mm. And one of the appearances I did was in Abu Dhabi. And I was staying at the Fairmont in Abu Dhabi. And one morning before they, they came to pick me up to take me to the soccer school, um, they said, we've got a Singaporean friend of ours who's a massive Manchester United fan who'd like to meet you for breakfast. Um, he's called Peter Lim. So I went next door to where Peter was staying, had breakfast with him. And he said, what are you doing now after you finish your career? And I said, and I literally have my, uh, I think I have a phone with me. Uh, and I said, I've just bought a plot of land outside Old Trafford and I want to build a hotel. And he looked at it and he said, oh, I'd love to come in and be a partner in that business with you. And that was it. I mean, wow. that's a, a, a fluke meeting. But I always think about those moments in life whereby you think it was so simple, but he believed in me straight away. He got on with me straight away and he went for it. And, you know, we still own hotel football together now. I'm mm -hmm. obviously, I, I, you know, I, I see him quite a bit. Why yeah. was the hospitality industry the f one that you choose, chose to venture into? We had this thing about hotels. We traveled all over the world, staying in hotels. I mean, we stayed in hotels three, four times a week mm. and we lived in hotels almost. So you're almost judging hotel food, the minibar, the bathroom, the beds, the sort of the, everything right. about hotels, the staff. You were always judging whether you really enjoyed <laughs> the experience because you were living in there all the time. Yeah. You know, we used to stay there night before every single game. So we're playing three times a week. Mm. And if we weren't in a good hotel, it hampered your experience. It's about like going holiday. If you don't have a good hotel, you feel mm. a bit like oh, the food's not good or the bed's not good or you just don't feel comfortable. Whereas if you're staying in a really nice hotel, mm. you feel really comfortable, you have a good holiday. Mm. And so I just feel like I wanted to bring some of the best hotels that we'd stayed in with United around the world and in, and in obviously uh, England as well. I wanted to connect world-class hospitality to residential and commercial. And I wanted us to be great in terms of the hospitality side of things. But St. Michael's was always about connecting that five-star mm. sort of hospitality service to the other sectors. And that was before people were sort of wanting pools in their offices and gyms mm. in their offices and all these things now that we have breakout rooms. I just always thought life is about having access to service, whether that's Deliveroo, whether that's sort of, you know, your car being washed whatever it is people want quick service and good service so mm. for me i think we were ahead of our time but obviously we hit at the time a recession then we had issues with planning uh, amassing the land then we had covid so we, we had a lot of pro problems with the project so now we're actually delivering it i still think that it's at the highest level in manchester mm. but it's not it's not unique anymore in the sense that there are other residential yeah. developments that do really good service and amenity. But I guess in some way it's a good thing because like I think you've spoken about this in a different podcast about your love for, for Manchester or the greater Manchester area and because of, of what you were able to do, everyone is now catching up and now bringing up that service in, in that area, and so to speak. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I'm a pioneer. I'm not a pioneer in it. I think we would have been if we'd have got it away 15 years ago. We'd have been absolutely <laughs> pioneers at that point. It may have been ahead of its time actually. Mm. I think now probably it feels like it's the the right next step because the, the quality in the city has got to a level whereby it maybe is ready for it now um but i think it, the, the projects that i do i like them i have to be passionate about them i i, I couldn't just do an industrial shed in <laughs> liverpool 
If someone said to me, you can make money out of an industrial park in Liverpool, <laughs> I'd just yeah. say, look, let someone else make the money out of that project. That's not for me. I don't want to travel over to Liverpool every day, number one. And number two, <laughs> you know, I don't. And I don't have any passion for industrial. And I don't have any, you know, people want to do that, great. I've got no problem with it, but it isn't for me that. It, it has to be an, an exciting project. And usually within sort of the Manchester area, which means that, you know, I can feel like there's jobs being created and there's an investment in the in the city and there's an investment in the area and we're making the city better. Is it safe for you to go to Liverpool? Like, do people yeah, call you? it is now, it is now. <laughs> oh, it, it didn't now. used to be? No, well, I, I wouldn't have gone. I mean, when I, <laughs> when I was playing, no, absolutely. I don't think it would have been safe. I think somebody would have had a right. go. Yeah, I think somebody would have had a go. Oh. And then when I first started going there for Sky, I used to have um, security, two or three security on me mm. uh, to, to get around the ground. And now I feel comfortable because I've been there so often and they know that, you know, time passes, uh, you know, attitudes soften a little bit. Mm. Um, and they're they're okay with me when I go there. But, you know, I still go there quite early, three hours before a game, so that there's not lots of them around. And I'll <laughs> wait till an hour after they've gone. Uh. Yeah, you don't want too many of them around, do you? You know, if they get in a group with each other, <laughs> yeah. they might just start having a go. Yeah. Yeah. Does it help or not help to have Jamie Carey go around when you're doing those games? Ooh. It helps from a point of view of security, because obviously if he's there, then it's, you know. He's but, the security. Yeah, yeah, he's like sort of acting as a peacemaker. But no, I actually think that, um, yeah, I think people have seen me with him probably on television yeah. from Liverpool and thought mm. they get on well, they've enjoyed that sort of side of things. And they probably, let's say, the attitudes have softened and they've definitely become less angry. But as a pundit, right, you get asked about Manchester United week after week after week. Yeah. Are you I, tired I wish, of I wish it? I, didn't, I mean, to be fair, it's just a little bit sort of like depressing year on year, like last 10 years we've been talking like this. And it's the same mistakes that are being made. So I'm hoping the new change, or the change in ownership will bring a new sort of energy and a new spirit to the club. But do you get tired? Like if Jeff Shreves is asking you like the same question again every week? No, but yeah, but I, mean, I, I do get, I mean, if it's, this, I mean, yeah, I do sometimes. You know, I did, I did the game against Manchester City, they lose 3-0 on the Sunday, which is bad. Mm. But then I was doing the game again on the Wednesday where we got beat 3-0 by Newcastle. Mm. So it's like, what? Well, I've got no more to say. You've said it all, haven't you? You know what I mean? People have watched it with their own eyes. Fat football fans are not stupid. They know what's going on. They don't really need me to tell them when a team's bad. So you're repeating the same things on a different day. It, it's that's it, it is, is a bit like that at the moment. Same mess, different day. So there was a, quite a difficult period that you went through with the managerial stint at Valencia. And I think a few of your F&B ventures, as even a club, didn't turn out very well, like a nightclub. And you Who were getting a it? ton of backlash also for wanting to knock down a historic pub. So yeah. going through that period, you did mention that you had to go through quite a big reset. And what would you say was the biggest lesson that you learned from that? The biggest problem for me with Valencia was that I, I felt I let Peter down and he'd shown so much faith in me. And obviously, I'd, I mean, I tried my best like you wouldn't believe, but, you know, really, I think that it is a hard job, obviously, but I, I wish I'd done better for Peter. That's the only thing that I think about for Valencia. I obviously was struggling. I was, you know, the, the language was a big problem for me. Um, lack of experience. Obviously, when you don't win games, it becomes more pressurizing. It gets more difficult. But I felt that in the end, um, the best thing for me was to leave. You know, I'm, I'm aware. I, I think Peter had to make the decision to take me out of the club. Um, it was absolutely the right decision. Um, I would have made that decision myself. Mm. Um, and it was difficult at the time. It was a period in my life where, like I say, I did a, a restaurant in Manchester. I did a 
like a 50-50 JV on a, on a nightclub, which was just stupidity. <laughs> um, and all three things failed. And around that time, we had lots of objections on St. Michael's for mm. the pub. Mm. And there was just three or four things that sort of, yeah, there's a bit of a reset required in terms of making sure that when you're doing something, one, you're passionate about it, two, that you basically have sort of got knowledge in the area, making sure if you're going to do something, particularly in a public arena like Manchester, you have to make sure you bring people on the journey with you and they like the project as well as you do. And we had these two big, enormous black towers in the middle of the city, just 100 yards from the um, great one-listed sort of town hall mm. and, and, and library. And lots of people didn't like it and we should have listened a lot quicker than we did. Having tried your hand at, at being a manager, right? Who would you say is the best manager in our current time? Oh, right, no, right, now, right now. Right now. Who is the best manager in the world? Jürgen. <laughs> I'd say Jürgen Klopp. Ooh! For, <laughs> you're surrounded by a lot of news, okay? Jürgen Klopp works with a budget that is far less than Pep Guardiola. Pep Guardiola is a genius and he'll mm. be the one that's remembered forevermore. But Jürgen Klopp for me is an amazing manager. Mm. Amazing manager, yeah. If you said to me, which manager could I bring to Manchester United tomorrow? It would be Jurgen Klopp. Ooh. There's another headline for the Daily Catcher. <laughs> <laughs> if he, left, he could never yes. go yeah. back to Liverpool, he should never oh, be Oh, no, he would be finished. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, they might not even let, let him leave. <laughs> uh, a slightly semi-serious question, but I was always like curious again. So on, on the other podcast that you've meant, um, you've talked about like how you, you've got your drive and your motivation from your dad and watching your dad. And some of it is conscious, some of it is subconscious. I've, I was curious as a parent, um, what are certain lessons that you hope or habits that you hope that like your kids would pick up and habits you wish they wouldn't pick up? <laughs> um, laziness. The idea that they don't, they don't work hard or that they just think that things are going to be given to them and they don't mm. try their best. That means not fulfilling your potential. And what not fulfilling your potential means that you suffer. So I think that would be something that I'd be really disappointed with if they didn't try their best and they didn't work as hard as they possibly could. So you are saying it didn't cross your mind at age 24, um, having a lot of money in the world at your feet to just take life easy. Or 32 no, years I, old, I, I never, just something doesn't work. The idea that you sort of, I mean, look, maybe it does for some people, there comes a mm. point where you semi-retire or you pull back a little bit. And I get that. But you can't do that in your 30s. You can't do that in your 30s. As many football players have tried, thinking that they'll get to 35, they've got some money in the bank, they'll go and sit on the beach, they'll smoke a cigar, they'll have a tequila and it'll all be beautiful. But you wake up that morning and you think, what am I doing? What am I going to do with the rest of my life? I've got 35, 40 years left. And they think, I'm, I can't just do this every day. Mm. And that happens to a lot of football players. And that's why quite a lot of sports people struggle badly in that first few years after they come out of sport because they've lived in this massive adrenaline rush day in, day out, week in, week out. And all of a sudden it goes boom like that and it's gone. Mm. And that's why you have to prepare. There is going to be a dip from that adrenaline rush. There's nothing can replace standing in the tunnel with 75,000 people there waiting. Nothing can replace that. But you can't go from there to there. You've got to just like mm. a little bit step mm. off the cliff edge, not fall off Dave. the cliff edge because yeah. the reality of it is it's a big drop and that's why you get lots of sports people struggling in their retirement years early retirement years but you've basically been working non-stop at a very high intensity for pretty much since you were 11 what do you think contentment for you would look like like when would you say to yourself <laughs> if ever that but, enough is enough but it's not unique that you know I, I, my grandparents my parents mm. the people who I work with the, their parents They've all worked hard from the age of 11. Mm. None of us have got, you know, there are very few people have got any other choice. Mm. You know, you, you, this, this idea that, you know, 
if you think about the people who you've grown up with, they've all had to work from the age of sort of, they've all had to go to school. It's hard work school. Mm. I keep saying school and people keep, <laughs> but from the age of four to the age of 16, you've put a load of hours into your education. Then you go to college, then you go to university or you might go and get a job or a trade, but you're then working for the next 50 years of your life till you're 70 or 75 and then you retire. And you think about all those years that people around you have worked. That's, you know, it's not you, a football player at the age of 11. I was a football player. Mm. You know, my life's been easy because I've been doing something I absolutely love and adore. And it's easy to work hard at in some ways. Mm. You imagine if you're then going to do a job which you don't quite love as much and you've got to do that for 50 years. That's where I think you need to basically show, that's why my hero and I look back and, think about it is my mum's dad who to be fair obviously he fought in world war ii but then he obviously then went on to do what would be simple jobs for the rest of his life and did do till he was 80 you know a few weeks before he died and i think that's an unbelievable life far better than my life because i i i can't think i could do that and he was so humble and he had discipline he used to get dressed up every day he put his shirt and tie on and he'd give his all and he you know polite great manners you know good standards and they're the things that I think are really important. They're simple things that our families all have around us. So we, we're not unique, or I'm certainly not unique by the fact that I worked hard. I know I talk about it a lot, but there are millions and millions of people all around the world in Singapore here today, families who are working really hard to make sure that their children and their families can have better lives. You've seen your father and your grandparents, like their life schedule and all that, and you know that your dad had missed parts of you growing up and the cost of you working so much is obviously one, your health, oh, and also yes. missing your kids yeah, that, growing just, up. Just, I was talking about that this morning. Mm. Uh, and it, it, was just, it came out of, uh, I was at Sir Alex Ferguson's, uh, Lady, uh, I was at Lady Cathy's funeral a few weeks ago and listening to Sir Alex's son Jason speak about how, the mum was always there every single day and that the dad was obviously always working and he wasn't there. And it just start to make you think about the fact you're not there and large parts of the lives that you do miss. And, you know, sometimes I sort of kid myself on that when they get older, they'll understand and they will understand and they understand that I'm going to work and that I'm helping them maybe in some ways. But also then I think to myself, when I'm there, do I actually sort of give everything to them? You know, in the last couple of weeks, I've thought about that quite a bit that, you know, I don't maybe take them to school enough or I don't pick them up from school or I don't sort of, if you like, you know, I, I, I've started to do it in the last few weeks, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> Never do it. Yeah, but you, you're right. Well, I mean, contentment, to be fair, what is contentment? I, I think working hard and, and being busy and doing the, you know, the project succeeding is a large part of that. But I also want to make sure that my children... Um, are influenced by both parents and not just by one, because I think mm. that's really important. And obviously Emma spends a lot more time with the kids than I do. Um, and they're amazing with each other. So it's no problem. It's fantastic. And my mum's there and Emma's dad's there a lot. Uh, but then I'm not there a lot. You know, now I'm away for two weeks, but I have to be away for two weeks and I, I need to be away for two weeks. But then I think to myself, you know, when will that stop? It may never stop. It never stopped for... You know, it never stopped for Sir Alex. I know in his career, but you know, it, I am content. I, I am content. I, I am. I'm happy every single day that I get. I don't sometimes show it, <laughs> but I am content. I, I I do feel quite happy. Your your entire framework, despite having lived an absolutely remarkable life, is that you are not so remarkable. Seems to be what you're telling yourself every single day. I mean, I'm not because I I wasn't a remarkable football player. I wasn't. The only thing you can do is basically in life is uh, do the very best that you can and extract every last little bit of talent and 
energy out of your body that you can. I always think that people, I always think of Robbie Savage. So Robbie Savage, very basic football player. But he was Sorry, I don't know who is Robbie Savage. That, that, okay. that, can you have that as a headline <laughs> on the podcast? <laughs> who is Robbie Savage? <laughs> so Robbie Savage was in class of 92. Not a lot of people know this. He's oh. in my ear. And Robbie Savage has had a career in football in the Premier League till he was 35, just through hard work and fight and determination. And then he's gone on since then to be a pundit, to go on to television, to be a presenter. And Robbie Savage probably annoys a lot of people, but I always look at Robbie Savage and think he's a great example of what Sir Alex Ferguson instilled in people, mm. that you just don't give in, you fight for every little bit of thing that you can get. And he's made the most of his career. And I think that's really a, the most you can. He's make the most of your life, make the most of your talent that you've got and the days that you've got in front of you. Thank you very much for watching today's episode. And thank you very much, Mr. Neville, for joining us. It was thank a you. huge honour. Thank you. Like, share, subscribe, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Everything you tweet seem to piss off about 152,000 people, right? I have the unique ability to piss everybody off. <laughs> on, it's amazing. On Saturday, I did Arsenal v Newcastle. And you, Arsenal fans have gone crazy last week mm. at me. Absolutely. I mean, literally, they ca I can't get them yeah. off my timeline. <laughs> Sometimes I write a tweet. I think I did this morning. <laughs> and I think, oh, no, I don't need that today. <laughs> I'm in Singapore. What was it? I'm relaxed. <laughs> So an Arsenal fan, with, with by the way, he's got 270,000 people following him, puts out a quote on Thursday morning. Gary Neville says, the referee was a disgrace and Ten Hag, yeah. I didn't say it. Mm. I was on a plane to Singapore. So everybody comes in and goes, he's a hypocrite, he's that. I mean, I'm like, I've not even said it. I've not, I'm on, <laughs> I've not even watched the game, I was on a plane. And I'm like, that's just wrong. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I was going to go for it, but then I thought, oh, do you know something? They'll all forget about it. I'm not commentating on a game for a couple of weeks now. Just let it go. Because you just start another war with Arsenal fans. and oh. mm. I think I did reply a little bit yesterday. <laughs> you did, you did. Yeah, I called him, they called him a Muppet. Uh, yes, you actually said, called him a Muppet. <laughs> so I, I was going to go again this morning, but I thought, no. <laughs> I feel like he was not going to admit it until he realised that you saw it. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.